Thank you, Ed. What an incredible story. Elisha is viewed as one of the great prophets of Israel, and he is able to take you know, 20 loaves, barley loaves of bread and feed 100 men. Did you catch the servant's response to Elijah's request? He, he thought it was kind of ridiculous. He said, how can I set this before a 100 men? The implication is there's no way that, that 20 loaves of bread could be enough for a 100 men. I actually like the way that uh, Eugene Peterson, have, have I mentioned that he's Presbyterian? Uh, Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, which is a contemporary translation of the Bible, he translates it this way. He's for a hundred men, there's not nearly enough. Twenty loaves of barley bread could not be expected to feed a hundred men. How much greater is the, is the miracle that Jesus performed when with just five barley loaves and two small fish, he was able to feed five thousand men, not including the women and children that were gathered that day. As I've been doing some research on uh, this wonderful story that we find in the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000, I found this comic strip that I'd like to share with you today. If Jesus were to do the same thing today, what would the response be? I can't eat that. I'm vegan. (laughs) Has that fish been tested for mercury? Is that bread gluten-free? Fortunately, they didn't ask those kinds of questions in the first century. Uh, He wasn't harassed by the fact that uh, people were vegan. I don't know if there were any vegans uh, in the first century. At least Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not report that. And it's interesting, of all the miracles that Jesus did, you know, other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're looking at the signs of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs that Jesus does before going into Jerusalem to be crucified. And of these seven signs, John makes the point to kind of tell the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey would always tell the rest of the story, because John knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke already existed. Those gospels had already been written. So John tries to tell us about other signs, but but John makes a point to tell us to repeat the story of the feeding of the 5,000. What is so important about this story that John wants to make sure we don't miss it today? To find out, I would encourage you to open your Red Pew Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. It may be found on page 1134 of your Red Pew Bible. John, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank You that You are the God who speaks to us. As we read your word, Lord, you communicate to us. So God, we pray that by your spirit this morning, that as we read, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter six, beginning with verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 
200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. As you read through the Gospels, you'll see that time and time again, Jesus likes to test his disciples to see where they are on their journey of faith. And this time he decides to test Philip, which makes sense because, well, Philip was from the area. He was from Bethsaida. If any one of the disciples would have known, where could you buy enough bread to feed all these people who had come, Philip would have known. But notice that Philip really doesn't answer Jesus' question because Philip thinks it's kind of a ridiculous question. Look again at, at, at Philip's response that we find. Uh, he says, two, in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Jesus, Philip doesn't say, well, there's this great little corner bakery in Bethesda, my hometown, and that'd be a great place to go, Jesus. But, th- but there's not nearly enough money to, to feed all these people. No, Philip is just focused on the money and they don't have enough money. So he goes right there and he says, there's no way. It would take 200 denarii to buy enough food just for the people to get a little bit. Now for us, uh, to understand what a denarii is, one denarius was worth a day's wage for the common laborer. So like, to put that in American dollars today, 725 is the minimum wage for a, a laborer today, and times that by eight hours, and so you're getting about $58 a day, times that by 200, because it was 200 denarii, 200 days worth of wages, you'd get about $11,600 is what Philip is talking about. And, and well, the disciples didn't carry that kind of money around, if you'll remember, they, they were pretty poor, they'd given up everything to follow Jesus. In fact, there's a great story where, where the, one of the disciples is pressed to pay the temple tax, and, and so they asked Jesus about that. And he said, yeah, we should. And then he tells Peter, go fishing. And Peter finds a fish, and he opens up the fish's mouth, and there's the coin. I mean, they were always scrambling for change, right? They weren't running, overflowing with money. Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? All that Philip can think about is, is buy. Not where to get the bread, but how could we possibly buy this kind of bread? Where... We don't have that kind of money. Philip is focused on what he doesn't have rather than what he already has in Jesus. How often can we be like that? We can have a scarcity mindset. We can focus on what we don't have rather than what we already have in Jesus. 
I mean, Philip was there when they, Jesus turned water into wine. He, he knows that Jesus is good at these food tricks. He probably could have done something. But, but all he can think about is, we don't have that kind of money. You know, the stock market has been going up and down a lot lately. And it's easy for us to become anxious when we, when we see it go down. And, and we can become anxious thinking about, oh, my, my retirement portfolio is shrinking. What am I to do? Rather than seeing the opportunity that maybe everything just went on sale. Warren Buffett, you know, the wealthiest investor in our modern era, has become a billionaire because he does value investing. When everyone else is selling, he's buying because he, he recognizes that when the stock market crashes, things have gone on sale, he's trying to find the best value. Are we scarcity, do we have a scarcity mindset or do we, are we focused on what we already have and what we might be able to do with what we do have? When we see someone driving a brand new car, you know, do we become covetous of that and go, man, I wish I had that kind of car rather than the old 11-year-old car I'm driving. Uh, what do we tend to think when we see those Facebook posts about the great Christmas vacations that other people went on? Do we think, man, I, I wish I could go on that kind of vacation. My life is so boring. Are we focused on what we do have and how grateful that we have a car that still works or that we did get to have some time with our family? Or are we focused on what we don't have? Do we tend to covet what others have? Because we know from the Ten Commandments, that's actually the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And yet, our economy here in the United States is, is built on coveting, right? I mean, it's a consumer-based uh, culture where, where we always see what others have. And advertisers know this, right? So we see Matthew McConaughey driving a Lincoln and go, man, I want to look like Matthew McConaughey. If I drive a Lincoln, maybe I'll look as good as Matthew McConaughey. I could drive a Lincoln. I still would not look as good as Matthew McConaughey. We see what other people are drinking. Oh, if I had that or if I wore this. We're constantly being pressed to buy and have what other people have. Advertised know that that plays to our selfish, sinful desires. Of course, the best way to battle coveting or greed is to give. To hold loosely to the things of this world. That's what the little boy in our church in this story does. He gives all of his lunch to Jesus. Even though it's not very much. Just five barley loaves and two fish. Now, for us to understand what this amount of bread was, um, there, it, most uh, modern scholars say that a barley loaf would have looked a lot like our current day pita loaves. Very thin, very small, not a lot to eat, just enough for a little boy to have a good lunch that his mom probably packed for him. Furthermore, the, the Greek word that John uses for fish here is actually, a, it's not the normal word, which is ixthys, that they would normally use. It's, it's, a, it's a different word that implies small fish, like sardines. The NIV translation of the Bible actually does a very good job of catching this Greek nuance when in John 6, verse 9, it, it translates it this way. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? This was a pretty small lunch. Enough food for a, a little boy, not a full-grown man. How could this food be enough to feed so many? Now, why does John make the point to tell us that these small bar loaves were barley loaves? Every other gospel writer just talks about how there were five loaves of bread. Well, John, you know, is writing to a Jewish audience living in the first century. You may have noticed that when Elisha did his miracle, it was 20 barley loaves, not just any kind of bread. It was barley loaves that Elisha gave to the hundred men. And so John wants us to see that as great as Elisha was, who could take 20 barley loaves and feed a hundred men, Jesus took five barley loaves and two small fish, and he was able to feed over 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not including the women and children. You see, John's very careful to say that it was just 5,000 men. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. He doesn't include the women and children in his head count 
In fact, Matthew, when he tells his stories, is very particular. In Matthew 14, verse 21, he says, And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Most scholars believe today that there were probably close to 15,000 people when you add the women and children that were gathered at that great feast that Jesus provided from just five barley loaves and two fish. 15,000 people is a lot of people. So in order for us to grasp how many people that is, I've actually got a picture of a political rally of Donald Trump. 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. Now, so that I don't get emails about supporting Donald Trump because I'm not trying to do that this morning, I've got a a political rally from from Barack Obama. 15,000 people, right? I'm politically neutral on this. I mean, it's it's just a lot of people. 15,000 people. In fact, I went to a Spurs basketball game over Christmas break with John. It was kind of our special Christmas gift to him, and we went to the game. And they announced there were 18,000 people at the game. It's a conservative estimate to think that there were 15,000 people. It could have been 18,000. I cannot imagine feeding that many people with just five barley loaves and two fish. That's why when Jesus asked Philip, where could we go buy the bread? Philip's like, we don't have that kind of money. Look at all these people. And then Andrew, you know, sweet Andrew, he says, well, here's this little boy. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But what is this among so many? They were focused on what they didn't have rather than what they did have. They had Jesus. That's all you need. Jesus can, can do the unbelievable. Jesus is the great X factor, as I like to say. You know, I actually, from my bold math days, I, I drew up a little algebra equation for you here. It's, it's 2 plus 5 plus X equals 5,000 plus, right? X is Jesus. Jesus is the X factor. He can take what little we give to him, and he can multiply it to minister to so many, many more. John doesn't want us to miss this point. That in Jesus' ministry, he took what this little boy had, this, the faith of a little boy, who said, well, I, I know there's a lot of people, but here's my lunch. And he gave all of his lunch. And Jesus was able to take these five barley loaves and two fish, and he was able to multiply it to feed everyone to their full, so that when they gathered what was left over, there were 12 baskets full pointing to the, as scholars say, to the fact that there were 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus is going to help save all 12 tribes. He was more than enough, more than enough for whatever anyone needed. This is we give back to God out of gratitude for what he's given to us. He can take what we give and he can, he can multiply its impact and minister to so many, many more. I've seen this in our own church. I've seen this happen. It's interesting that this is January. This time... Eight years ago, I went to my very first finance committee uh, meeting, and you know, I was an old missions pastor from, from Highland Park Pres, and my degree is in finance, and so I kind of looked at the budget, and I just noticed that at the time, we were only giving 6.5% of our operating budget to local and global missions, and as an old missions pastor, I, I didn't feel like that was right. I could not find 6.5% in the Bible, and so I, I just pressed the finance committee at the time, and, and I just raised the question. I just said, you know, why are we only giving 6.5% of, of our operating budget to local and global missions, I, I think we should at least give 10%. We should give a tithe, right? A, a full 10%. When I asked that question, all honesty, knowing how slow Presbyterian churches are to move, and so I thought, well, I'll ask the question this year, and then maybe next year we can, we can change the budget, you know, and it'll, it'll get bigger. But we had Elder Jim Thompson at the time, who was moderating the committee, and, and he's the banker, was, and, and, and he's very fast with math, and so he did a quick math. He said, well, if we add $40,000 to the missions budget, we'll be tithing. Is, is that good enough for you, Howard? I said, that'll work. <laughs> and we did it. And if you remember, in 
2010, at the end of 2010, we were a little worried about would we make budget. And by God's grace and, and our generosity, we did make the budget in 2010. Not by a lot, but kind of like we just did recently. We, we made it. We made our goal. And, and so we were fine. But going into 2011, we were feeling a little conservative. We thought, can we really do this? And yet, we did. The 2011 budget was no problem. We, we made it with even some surplus left over as we gave an additional 10% to the work of God's kingdom, to the work of missions. Yes, as we give back to God, God is able to take what we give and he's able to, to multiply it to minister to so many more. And so our church has made the commitment that we're going to be a tithing church where, where every year we give at least 10% to local and, and global missions. And we're excited that last year, you know, we were able to give 16% of our of operating budget to local and global missions. And I know some people think, well, tithing isn't that like an Old Testament principle? You know, we don't live by the Old Testament law anymore. Isn't that something from the Old Testament? Well, it's true that tithing was first introduced in the Old Testament. But the one time Jesus talks about it, he actually affirms it. We find this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when he's challenging the Pharisees to do more than a tithe. In Matthew 23, verse 23, we read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin... And neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus does not reject tithing. He says, no, you should tithe, but you should do more than just a tithe. You should give in a way that cares for the justice and, and acts of mercy and faithfulness. Jesus wants us to continue to, to give out of gratitude for all that God has given to us. In fact, in Matthew 22, right before this, uh, Jesus is tested by some Pharisees. They're trying to set him up. And so they ask Jesus, while he's in Jerusalem near the temple, they said, hey, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? So Jesus wisely asked them to take a coin and look at whose inscription is on there. And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus said, well, then give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, he's near the temple at this time. Everybody who would have heard him say that would have known that what to give to God was to at least give 10% back to God out of gratitude for what God has done for us. But it's interesting, uh, many Old Testament scholars have actually done some more research on this and have found that based on the year, based on all the special offerings and the festivals and the feasts and all the different ties they had, that, that sometimes, some years, Israel's, Israelites would give 23% to the temple. They gave well above a tithe, even in the Old Testament, when they were guarded and guided by the law. Now we're guarded and guided by grace. How much more grateful we must be now. How much more should we give? Yes, when Jesus says, give to God's, what is God's? What is God's exactly? In Psalm 24, verse 1 to 2, King David says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Everything is God. For God created everything. Everything that we are, all that we have is ultimately a gift from God. So what are we called to give to God? We're called to give God our entire lives, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Say, Lord, what would you have me do with these things that you've entrusted to me? How might I give in such a way that you might multiply what I give to minister to so many more? Is as we look at the, at the New Testament, we can see that the first century church gave well above a tithe. That's why they don't talk a lot about it. They gave to meet one another's needs. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 4 the story of Barnabas, who was from the tribe of Levi, who knew that he was only required to give 10%, but he sold what property he had, and he gave all of the proceeds to the apostles. 
trusting these men to give and distribute it to help meet the needs of the poor. We read in Acts chapter 2 that, that there was no needing person among them because as a need would arise, people would give. And it was the generosity of the earliest church that helped draw people to the earliest church. For it says in Acts 2 that, that, the, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Yes, people were drawn to the generous first century church as they reflected the generous love of our God. So, who, our God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, our God is a God who is so generous. And in gratitude for God's generosity, we're called to, to give back, to see what God might do with what we give to him, see how he might multiply it to minister to, to so many more. <clears throat> this month I have the uh, session reading a, a neat little book. It's by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure Principle. You can buy it for six bucks on uh, K- uh, Christian book distributors. It's a great book. And it's focused on the words of Jesus that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Where Jesus is talking about giving and, and, and how we're supposed to give. And he writes this, or says this. Someone else wrote it. Matthew wrote it, but he spoke it. He, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we give to Christ's church, our heart follows God doesn't really want our money. He wants our heart. But as we give, our heart follows. Jesus knows that that is a reality, that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. You know, Randy Alcorn in his book points out that when we die, we don't take any of this stuff with us. Our clothes, our homes, nothing. We don't take anything, our cars, we don't take anything with us. But he cleverly writes, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. If we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of in temporal, we store up treasures in heaven that will never stop paying dividends. As a finance major, as one who worked four four years with PricewaterhouseCoopers, the largest accounting firm in the world at the time, I can tell you there's no greater investment than giving to the work of God's kingdom. Because as we give to God's kingdom, God is able to take what we give and he's able to to use it to minister to to so many more, to to multiply its impact for eternity. Like the 48 children who prayed to receive Christ during our vacation Bible school this past June. Half of the children who came to vacation Bible school are not members of our church. These are people from the community who heard the gospel and these young children with with their young hearts opened up their hearts to Christ and said, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. He says, we give back to the work of God's kingdom. He takes what we give and he, he multiplies it to minister to so many, many more. I've seen this in our church. As we've become a tithing church, we've gone from sponsoring 12 missionaries a year, eight years ago, to now we have over 40 plus missionaries that we help support around the globe. In a moment, you're going to hear from Andy Smith, who's one of those. It's, it's amazing. In fact, if you go into the Great Hall, you'll see this map of the world that we have. And we, we need to update that map because we've got some new missionaries we've added. It, it's amazing how as we give back to God, God's able to take what we give and he's able to multiply it to minister to so many, many more. Two years ago, I had the opportunity to um, go to La Paz, Bolivia to dedicate the sanctuary that our church helped build financially. You may remember eight years ago, we had a refurbishing campaign to put a new boiler and chiller because it was from 1956. It needed to be replaced and all of us like heating and air so we thought that'd be good. But we also had a fellowship center that we wanted to soundproof so we could have an 1105 contemporary worship service and 
we wouldn't have to hear their drums and they wouldn't have to hear the organ. And so it would be great. And so we, we did all that work, but we said, we're not going to just build ourselves. We're going to help build the kingdom, build the church globally. And so we tied an additional 10% on our capital campaign. The campaign was 1.35 uh, mil- million. So we tied $135,000 and half of that went to, uh, to the church in Bolivia to help build their sanctuary. Well, I was talking to Greg Hurst, who is the missionary of ours, uh, about as we dedicated his sanctuary, you know, what other American churches were a part of this? And he said, there were only three American churches that helped with this. And I said, well, what, what role did our church play in that? He said, First Presbyterian Church of Amarillo helped us break through the wall. And I asked him, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I'm a runner, and, and I like to run marathons. And he kind of lost me on that, because I don't know anybody who'd want to run a mar- marathon. I mean, that just sounds crazy. But he runs marathons, 26 miles. If I have to go 26 miles, I get in a car and drive. But he runs marathons. And, and he told me that, you know, when you run a marathon, he's telling this to me, he says, when you run a marathon, you get to mile 20, and you hit what they call the wall, where your body is saying you can't go any further. You should stop now. And it's at the wall, it's at 20 mile, mile 20, you need someone to come alongside you to cheer you on, to give you that Gatorade, to give you that cup of water, to tell you that, yes, you can do it, just keep moving one step after another. And he shared with me that in this three-year process of building the sanctuary, the, the Bolivian government would raise some kind of tax or some kind of tariff on them where they'd have to pay a little extra money or, or the uh, supplies would get more expensive and they weren't sure if they could afford to continue building. And then we would show up with a check for the right amount to help them keep going. And this church in Bolivia, it's ministering to the world. You see, La Paz is the capital of Bolivia. And they have a Christian school that's the only English-speaking school in all of Bolivia. And so the ambassadors from all over the world want to send their children to this Christian school because, well, they want their kids to learn English. English is the language of trade. And so these kids learn English, but they also hear the gospel of grace every day as they go to chapel. As they hear this gospel, their hearts are transformed and So when we went to dedicate this sanctuary, there are people from all over the world gathered together to celebrate what God has done. Yes, you should be so proud that as we give back to God, God is able to take what we give and use it to minister to so many more. I think John wants to remind us of that. So what is God calling you to give? Now, if you're not yet a tither, and I want to be legalistic about that, but if you think 10%, how could I possibly do that? Well, know that we as a church didn't get to giving 16% overnight. We gave 1% more each year. As we continued to, to give, we saw how God took what we gave and he was able to multiply. And this little boy's lunch, it doesn't look like much, five barley loaves and two fish. But, but if he, he gave what he had, he gave what he could, and Jesus took it and multiplied its impact. What is God calling you to give in 2019? Because as we can see from 2018, it took all of us to do our part to help reach the financial needs of this church and the work we're trying to do. And as we gave, it was amazing to see 48 children pray to receive Christ in June as a part of Vacation Bible School. It was amazing to see us send 74 kids on a life-transforming ski trip to Crested Butte this year as many high school students were able to hear the gospel and and grow in their faith. It was amazing to to look at that map and see how it continues to grow as we now have 40-plus missionaries that we're giving to help minister around the world in places like Iraq with Greg Callison, who works among the Kurds, or or Greg Hurst in in Bolivia, or Andy Smith in in the Philippines. It's, It's amazing to see how if we give, God takes what we give, and he's able to multiply it to minister to so many more. But more than anything, our giving is driven by grace, out of gratitude. For what God has done for us, we give. 
The first century church was more generous than the Jews of the Old Testament because they just saw how much God had given to them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Our God has been so generous to us. May we continue to be generous back to God out of gratitude for what he's given to us so that he might take what we give and like this little boy, he's able to multiply it to minister to so many more. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're the God who is so faithful to provide for all of our needs in Christ Jesus. We look at this story and see this little boy who has more faith than the disciples and he, he offers up his lunch. It's not much, but it's all he's got. And yet you take what he gives and you're able to multiply it to minister to so many more. God, help us to have the eyes of faith, to see that you've given us more than enough time, talents, and treasures to help do the work of your kingdom. Help us to see that as we give back to you, Lord, you're able to take what we give and multiply it to minister to so many more. I thank you for missionaries like Andy and Andy Smith and, of course, Greg Hurst and Greg Callis and those who are doing the work of your kingdom around the globe as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. Lord, help us to always be a globally-minded church, knowing that you have blessed America to be the wealthiest country in the history of the world, and we are the wealthiest church in the world. So, Lord, help us to, to be faithful with what you've given to us so that we might minister to even more, that like this little boy, you might take what we give and multiply it to minister to so many more. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said.